Well, hello, and welcome to the Fisher Poetry Podcast, a showcase of prose, poetry, and song written and performed by those in the commercial fishing community. Mostly. I'm your host, Brad. Thanks for joining us today. Today's episode is a special one. You'll be hearing from Fisher poet Tella Adson of Bow, Washington, in an interview with Joanne Rideout to discuss Tella's new book, What Water Holds. This interview was recorded on Saturday, June 10th, 2023. So without further ado, here's Joanne and Tella. Well, thanks so much for joining us here today for this interview with author, commercial fisherman, and fisher poet Tella Adson. You may have heard Tella perform at the annual Fisher Poets Gathering in Astoria, Oregon, which if you've never been to is just a wonderful event. It happens every year in February. Tella Adson has been involved in commercial fishing since she was a child. When she first went to sea in Alaska with her parents, she grew up to be, among other professional pursuits, a career fisherman herself. She's performed for years at Fisher Poets, and now she's written a book. So thank you so much, Tella, for being here with us. Thank you, Joanne, and thank you for your years of support of Fisher Poets. <laughs> I have loved getting to know you. And oh, thank you. Likewise. Likewise. Um, it's a highlight of my year to um, to be able to go to Fisher Poets and to see you. I always love when I get to, to see you perform. It's just lovely. Now, I've read your book. For people who have not seen it yet, it's called What Water Holds. And I have to say that it just really, it blew my socks off. I, I knew it was going to be good, but it was just, it's, I mean, I'm a real reader. I'm a, I read a lot of things and this is one of the best books I've ever read. It just was captivating. I want to read it again. So <laughs> I've always been a fan of your work and, and I love hearing you perform. And, and one of the reasons is that you have such an authentic voice. I mean, it's really compelling to hear you talk about commercial fishing from the perspective of an experienced professional, a person who's a committed activist, an environmentalist, a conservationist, and, and you're also a woman working in a field where most of your colleagues are men, and that's a, a, a dynamic of its own. So, so this is a lot to share and unpack in one book, and you just do it so well here. I mean, we are right there with you. So I, I wanted to ask you to give a reading from What Water Holds. Yeah. But first, can you can you first just tell people who are watching what or listening what mm -hmm. um, the book is about? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Joanne. That that is a whole lot of of love to start with. <laughs> I appreciate it enormously. Um, the book is a collection of essays that were primarily written over the past decade of Fisher Poets gatherings. Um, they haven't all been shared at Fisher Poets, but primarily. So they're um, memoir essays exploring identity, equity, community, the changing climate, and sustainability, among other things, all set uh, in the backdrop of my, you know, four decades as a Southeast Alaska salmon troller. Wow. Yeah. Well, um, Tella asked me what I would like her to read from the book. And I, the, you know, when I went through this book, I went through it with like a highlighter and little sticky things and stuff, because every other page was something I wanted to remember. And this passage is just so compelling for me. So would you read from your book a little, Tella? I, I would be delighted to. And I, I so appreciated your willingness to identify um, <laughs> what to read, because I think that's a kind of fascinating way to guide our conversation. Oh, um, great. 
what I would say about this particular, let's see, we're going to read from a later essay called How We Will Weather This, which I wrote for the 2016, excuse me, probably the 2017 Fisher Poets Gathering. And and something that the listener should know is it refers back to um, one of the early essays in the book at the start of our fishing season, my partner Joel and I going out to begin the fishing season. And now this is an essay that's referencing the season is done and we're on the, the run home. So Okay, well, I'm cool. going to mute my microphone and get out of the way so we can listen to you. <laughs> how we will weather this. I think back to June, when the Nurka first nosed out of Salisbury Sound, and I drove as Joel put the gear together. It was so easy to trust the ocean when tucking into that cheerful blue, taking at face value the snake oil promises of a calm day. So easy to imagine myself unafraid on the water. That was a lie. Or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it's not so much that I'm afraid on the water as I'm afraid of the instant when everything changes, the moment you don't see coming, when you suddenly feel yourself tipping from shitty to very, very bad. The moment you realize you're in trouble is the moment too late. There's no turning back or avoiding what now is. There's only the question of how you will respond and if your response will make a difference. So this is what scares me, staring into darkness broken only by green water, feeling alone, small, helpless against the power of this storm holding on to hope that I have what it takes to get through. Whenever a boat goes down, mariners across the coasts mourn. We recognize ourselves and our loved ones in the loss. Could have been me. Even if we don't say that out loud, we can't stop the memories washing in, the close calls, times we weren't sure we'd make it through. The story we tell is that it doesn't matter who you are. If you're in trouble out there, your fellow fishermen will be there. They'll help. I want to believe that's true. I can't deny the copper taste of fear in my mouth right now. But as the anchor dips and each new wave floods the foredeck, I remind myself, Joel is with me. I'm not alone. We're in this together. There's comfort in this. Even before and without veering into very, very bad, we need each other out here. We've needed each other all along. Only a boat could have coaxed this needfulness from me. Only a boat could have convinced me it isn't a shameful needfulness. Leaning on someone else doesn't mean surrendering myself. Staring into these walls of water 
I am finally starting to see that uncompromising self-sufficiency doesn't yield a partnership, whether on a boat or on land. Like a fever, the weather breaks by morning. I peel my fingers from the wheel and turn it over to Joel. Chaos greets me in the forecastle, clothes and books littering the bunk. I don't deal with any of it. Just sweep aside enough to clear a body-sized hollow amid the fallout. I set the clock for four hours from now, pull the sleeping bag over my head, and am out. If dreams come, they don't stay. They might be salmon, flashes of silver darting through my unconscious. If I could drag myself up from the murky depths, I'd swim to them, to the soft, formless space between asleep and awake. My salmon whispers would rise into salmon songs, the night's terror soaring into a wordless roar of triumph, reveling in survival as those silken bodies schooled me, washing us to safety, finning us home. Wow. Thank you so much. I love that passage. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> Boy, that that is just such a powerful segment there, uh, section, passage. But it's, 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 the whole book is like that. I mean, for anybody who hasn't read this yet, you were in for a treat. So when I was listening to this, I'm a, I'm a recreational sailor, mm -hmm. you know, so, um, and going out on the waters here, I mean, I, I grew up sailing on the East Coast where it was a little more protected. But here, when I mean, the lower Columbia is not anything to be trifled with and where you are even probably even more so. So this whole thing just brings to mind for me something that I think about quite a bit with regard to fishermen of how vulnerable mm -hmm. you are when you're out, when anyone is out on the water and how much um, you know, every time we sit down to a meal of fish, we are benefiting from people taking that risk. And so uh, you handle that vulnerability for weeks and weeks on end out there and, and for a whole, so, I mean, you've been doing that for years. So can you talk more about that, the vulnerable quality of being at sea? Yeah, yeah, I can. Um, it's a funny thing about the we normalize what we know, right? All of us. And so for both Joel and I on the Nurka, we both grew up out there that he was on the boat when he was two weeks old. I was seven years old. And so, so the elements of risk are just woven into your normal life. And, um, and that doesn't lessen them. But I mean, in some ways, I worry that it can when you get a string of years going where the bad thing hasn't happened. And, you know, do we get overconfident? Do we still attend, um, you know, as mindfully to our safety drills as we should? Um, <laughs> some, some of us do more than others. Um, but it's, 
it's a consciousness that is always there. It's a mindfulness of watching the weather and, uh, and knowing that you can still be surprised. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, what came to mind for me as I was listening to you read and when I read it in the book was the experiences mm -hmm. I've had of being offshore on a boat or a ship where you can't see land. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at some point I would look around and say, wow, this boat is all that, or this vessel is all that's yeah. protecting me from like hundreds of feet down. Mm -hmm. And, and so recognition. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so, and I thought, you know, and so there's that thing of, well, what do I do if it sinks? And so it's kind of like the way I feel about getting on airplanes. It's like, yeah. I should have really made the decision to not go before I got on. <laughs> Because <laughs> once you're out there, you're you kind of got it. You kind of got to There's no point in panicking, you know. <laughs> so I, it just, I think, I think for people on land, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, there's that that whole concept of situational awareness is so mm -hmm. ever present in your work because you can't. I mean, I know that we're all human and people do daydream and fall asleep, and but I mean, you are your job really requires you to be very to pay attention more, I think, than most. Do you think, would you say that? I think it, um, yeah, both are the, the job part of it, like the making a living part of it is all about being attuned to your surroundings and paying attention. And the survival part of coming back safely yeah. is equally paying attention. So I think that is, that's probably a huge thread of what um, what I love about our fishing time is because it is that heightened awareness and um, being present with your surroundings in a way that for me is really hard to achieve on land <laughs> and in daily life. Well, so there, that's my, my next question is, you know, I think of you being out at sea in this very unusual environment, and then you're back on land. I mean, that's the other part of it. And so can you compare the two experiences, because there are a lot of people who will never be at sea ever. Maybe yeah. they'll go on somebody's boat for a day, but mm -hmm. your your visceral sort of uh, impressions of being on land as opposed to being at sea, what are the, mm. how do they compare for you? Yeah, I would be really interested to hear from land folks, the folks you're talking about who don't get to go out to sea or don't choose to, um, who are able to find those pockets of quiet and presence in their land life because I know that those people exist and I don't know how they do it. Um, for me, coming back at the end of a season is, it's all scale and speed and sound and th those contrasts. Um, you know, on the one hand, being 40 miles offshore on the Fairweather grounds um, in the Gulf of Alaska, trolling for salmon, we are so aware of our insignificance as two people on one 43-foot boat. And if you can see land that day, what you're seeing is the 15,000-foot Mount Fairweather and its range. And the, just welcoming that insignificance of ourselves, like feeling reassured by the vastness of nature. Um, mm. we're, just a, we're just a speck in that. And how much of what weighs me down on land 
doesn't seem to matter in that moment. Mm. Wow. Um, you know, for me, the relief of being on the boat is so much about being unconnected. Um, you know, our phones turn off and go in a drawer and we don't have service and I don't worry about that inbox or any emails or all of that. And that is an incredible um, kind of privilege. Yeah. These days. Yeah, it's a gift. Yeah. Hmm. Um, you know, the boat goes seven knots at uh, at full speed on the on the long journey home. And then we we tie up the dock lines and get in a car and are on I-5 at <laughs> 60, 70 miles per hour. And that's just like that. It's astonishing. Well, so let's talk a little bit about you as an author. Um, you know, it's sort of a cliche to say that I'm I'm writing a book. You know, I've said mm -hmm. it and I haven't written one yet. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about the whole idea of writing a book and how you decided to write a memoir? I mean, you could have written, I mean, poetry, say, because you're a Fisher poet or a novel or some other genre. Why, why um, that? Why memoir? Mm -hmm. Well, I would first like to revisit your book and <laughs> you saying that you will write one. That is enough. Like saying it and you don't know the clock. You're you're not done. So I'm, I'm still counting on your book. Um, I was saying for mine, in answer to your question, um, this has been about a 13-year journey. And this book is not the one that was at the beginning of that journey. Um, for forever, for a long time, slash forever, I told myself and anyone else that I only had one book in me. And... And it wasn't this one. Like, I didn't even see this one on the horizon. Um, it was a memoir and it was um, set in um, Joel's and my fishing season and kind of the nature of our journey and um, relationship and family stuff. And, and that book, like, that book didn't come to be at this time. And for a long time like for a good chunk of years that put me off writing entirely like the um just feeling real vulnerable in writing and having a lot of the insecurities that I think a lot of us are prone to sure. um and not thinking I knew how to do it and the one place that kept me tethered to writing through you know, through that, um, those desert years was Fisher Poets, where if I didn't write a single other thing all year long, other than like fish emails and business <laughs> stuff, I would write something for Fisher Poets and I would write something new and I would think about what, um, what would be most useful to the audience this year? Like, what is there that is would be most helpful for me to be able to say and where what would be most helpful for the audience from what this year has been and where do they align um and so having that source of community and reason to write um was what made this book possible as well as another fisher poets connection to poet holly hughes 
when she and her partner took the helm of Empty Bowl Press and Holly approached me and asked if I'd be interested in doing a collection of Fisher Poets essays with Empty Bowl. That hadn't even occurred to me. And it wasn't something that I would have had the wherewithal or the, you know, the make it happen without their advocacy. So I am enormously grateful to that small press of two people who made this book happen with me. Can you talk a little bit about um, uh, your writing process? I mean, uh, one of the things that when you're saying that the book is, <clears throat> is is essays that were written at different times, it's it's really coherent. I mean, it flows together really well. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, so I guess maybe, uh, can you talk about your writing process? Do you sit mm -hmm. down every day to write or do you go on a retreat or do mm -hmm. you just write whenever it comes to you or how does that work? Yeah, I have, I have had a lot of guilt over the years <laughs> and like weird writerly imposter shame and that oh i know stuff. yeah I hear you. it feels gross that is like oh well i don't write every day so so i'm not serious about it and um and that's and that's just the way it is for me at this time is um one of the things that i really love about writing uh, a thought about writing is from author pam houston where she recommended look keeping an eye out for the things that glimmer at you like you're going through your day and you you know you see this piece of graffiti or you have this conversation with a parent or a stranger and there's a little glimmer around the edge of that that you're like I'd better write that down <laughs> um and so that's what the extent of like writing on the boat there is no writing on the boat that happens for me in the like a 16 hour day on deck, but I do keep a notebook out on the galley table. So if I get a minute to scribble something down, then that can be, you know, revisited later. Um, yeah, the writing practice in, in terms of uh, how coherent the book flows, I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate you saying that. And that is solely really about Holly Hughes' expertise as an editor. Um, you know, we came into this together with, uh, we both had a list of which, um, which essays we were interested in seeing in a collection. And our lists were very compatible. And there was just a little, a little shuffling that we did about which ones she wanted to see and which ones I wanted to fit. And, um, what belonged in this and and then we we talked about that it didn't make sense for it to be a chronological layout as far as oh I wrote this piece for the 2012 Fisher Poets just on down the line but where did they line up in terms of theme and um story well it seems like just a, a daunting thing as as you know to I mean, you've done an amazing thing to write a book and here and here it is. I mean, here it is. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> hooray for you. Hooray for you. Um, so how did, I love what water holds. It's such a beautiful name. So how did you come around to that name? It's so poetic. Thank you. Uh, you know, everything in this book 
is one way or another a tribute back to Fisher poets. <laughs> um, years ago, it was probably like seven or eight years ago, there was a Bellingham event, like just a reading one evening that was uh, some music and some Fisher poets together doing an event. And they called the event What Water Knows. And I loved that. And um, I was like, oh, that's a good, that's a good name. <laughs> um, and then when Holly and I started working on this and she asked if I had ideas for the title, it's like, oh, I really liked that. And that one had been, somebody else had that one for a book of poetry. So yeah, we just played with it a little and What Water Holds is what we came with. It's just such a great title. It's it's really a great choice. Well, so as I've been as I went through reading the book, one word sort of came to mind for me, and that is the word sacred. As mm -hmm. I was reading this, so your descriptions of catching fish one by one, mm -hmm. you know, this is a method with trolling, which you explained in the book, it sounds like a really serious and profound undertaking from your perspective. I mean, even the killing, the cleaning, all the aspects of the process of taking a fish from the wild and bringing it into shore as sort of a product. So it sounds like so much more than a job. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that philosophy and, and about trolling and why you chose that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, um, you know, I think on land, we often talk about commercial fisheries as if they're just kind of one homogenous entity. Oh, commercial fishing. And every fishery is so very different in terms of its gear type, its harvest and handling practices and scale and regulations, and also by the people who are drawn to different fisheries. And, mm -hmm. and trolling is very indicative of... Um, what feels best for me and and I think a lot of my fleet mates is that that slow pace like we are in a marathon season of um opening July 1st closing September 20th um putting as many days on the water as we can uh, because we're not dealing in quantity you know we're not catching you know the the hundreds of thousands of pounds we're dealing in number of fish per day and and so we're about quality and attending to being present right like with each fish and and that is really what appeals to me about trolling it is so connected to our environment to our practices um the way the fishery is managed and you know, there's a lot of introspection that happens as you're on deck cleaning fish and you get muscle memory. And so there's a lot of time for your mind to just, just go where it goes and sleep deprivation helps with that too. Um, so, <laughs> wow. <that's so> <laughs> so your writing voice and your voice as a person, I've heard you perform uh, many times over the years, you are just so immediate and present. I mean, and, and that is something that, I mean, that's why we meditate. That's why we, and it's most people struggle to be in mm -hmm. the same room with what's going on with them at any given mm -hmm. time. I do. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I, I know it's a universal lament that we're not present and our phones make that 
easier to just dissolve into away from the present. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, as readers in this book, I mean, one of the reasons why this book is so wonderful is we are just right with you. I mean, I was not anywhere but right in this book when I was reading it with you. And it was just a wonderful experience because it's really great to be present when you can pull it off. <laughs> and you <laughs> seem to do it a lot. And so um, I, I wanted to, um, how do you maintain that ability to be present in such a distracted world? I mean, h- how do you how do you do that? I mean, this isn't the way that when we were kids learning to write, for instance, mm-hmm. this isn't the way we were taught to write. We were taught like, you know, introduction, middle and end mm-hmm. and, and, you know, the essay writing thing. So how did you find your voice and and how do you stay present? I guess those are <sighs> two questions. I I wish I, I, I don't know that I do. <laughs> I think fishing <laughs> and the boat time is both an enormous gift and and a crutch that I rely on real heavy to get that that bolster of presence time um because it's um you know it's embedded in the experience there and so then to find it on land um is there a carryover it's hard i mean yeah. i think i think there i think there is some carryover like just by the nature of the years and the seasons that um you know, I know that I feel best when I'm on the boat and on the water <laughs> and where are ways that I can incorporate that on land and in writing. Um, performing is a huge help, I think, for hmm. learning how to write, um, like how to how to deliver a story, um, which it's also very, very scary for a lot of us, you know, like we may seem very present on stage, but maybe you didn't see me out in the alley before I went on chugging a bottle of kaopectate, you know, like to calm the stomach. Um, Cause it's, you know, like I was a very, very shy kid. I'm terrified of being seen, um, putting yourself out there and and also taught like raised on like a um that it's better to have a low profile and not draw attention to yourself so these things are really in conflict like um putting yourself out there in personal stories of a book and believing that that is of value like why do it right like why do the scary thing or the risky thing Yes. Um, and like Measy Hermanson, you know, one of my favorite fellow Fisher poets has talked about the terror, you know, of, of getting up on stage and doing this, but that it's an addictive kind of terror <laughs> because, and it's not <laughs> that way for a yay, look at me kind of thing. It's like, oh, I feel closer to you. I feel a connection with people that where I felt more alone before without this. Um, so when I can look in an audience and see the friendly face and recognize that they are with me on this and that even if they don't go to see or ever have that experience, they can find some universal human sharedness in that, 
that's what is the value for me. Does that answer? Well, you? Yes, that's a great answer. I, I'm, and I think that audiences are craving that sense of connection too. Mm -hmm. So they, I mean, I mean that one of the most wonderful things about Fisher poets is how vulnerable people make themselves when they go up on stage and it sort of lets us all be mm -hmm. more human. You know, it's not, mm -hmm. it's not all produced and, you know, perfect and, and that's lovely. I mean, that is one of the most beautiful things about it is how human it is and how we all are that way. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanted to ask you about being a performer as opposed to being an author. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, you're writing and writing and writing and kind of it's sort of remote from people. And then the book is out there, which is a very different experience from performing. So mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you whether um, one process feeds the other in any way mm -hmm. um, or how do you feel about writing for a book compared to performing? Yeah, that's a great question. I had to learn that um, because when I started coming to Fisher Poets, I didn't know how to write for the stage as opposed to writing for the page. And I didn't understand yet that there was a difference between the two, um, that what would work for people reading at home might not fly for holding their attention you know as a as a live reading and particularly in my case and other folks who aren't writing poetry or short punchy pieces but asking an audience to stay with me for like a full essay of prose that is a big ask um and i need to be mindful of their time and their attention and you know can is this a fair ask and what can I do as a writer to make it more inclusive of yeah them? yeah and and the people who were really helpful to me in understanding that like early on taking a workshop from Ron McDaniel you know our cowboy fisher poet and Clem Stark and Will Horn oh, yeah yeah Laura Messersmith Glavin those are pros at knowing how to be with their audience and it's it's been hard for me to um, come to understand like as a naturally quiet person who would rather be like sitting back more and doing a one-on-one -on -one, like to understand that I don't have to have the big buoyant personality to still like welcome people in with me that, right that's one of the beautiful things about Fisher Poets is we have so many different voices and styles and they're all amazing. Um, so I wanted to talk, there is certainly a, um, a theme in the book about being a woman in the fishing industry as I would be very natural. And so <clears throat> some of the things that you describe in the book are, are truly harrowing and, and yet they're so familiar to, uh, women in any walk of life uh, mm -hmm. who are reading your book, whether they're fishermen or not. So I wanted to ask you about the threat of violence in how does it shape women's experience in, in commercial fishing? Seems like a, might, it might be a big influence. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it shapes our experience and like violence shapes our awareness and our, our experiences everywhere we go right as as women and for for women and non-binary folks in commercial fisheries i i think about how 
privileged my experience has been in its safety as a boat kid who grew up in the fleet that I have stayed in, you know, and the fleet has changed over the years and people come and go, but like, that's my home fishery. And I feel very safe and just, I feel a sense of ownership in it that is very different from, you know, the, the woman who has a dream on land of coming into fishing and has to find her way in without knowing anyone and without knowing the distinctions between gear types and fisheries like is she going to feel safer getting a job on a trawler where she will be one of maybe it's just her and the captain maybe it's just her and the captain and another deckhand or is she going to be on a saner with a group of like five or six people? Um, you know, those are very different experiences. And and so, and violence looks in like different things, right, to all of us. And and one of the things like like I have had very safe and lucky experiences in a lot of ways. And I've also had experiences of just like knowing I needed to make myself small for a whole season where it was best not to be my full self. Mm. And, and that is an experience I think that a lot of people can have. And that, 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 that crosses gender lines too, not just women and non-binary folks, but, but men who need to not be like, you know, their self of admiring a sunset for, for being like beaten down by their crewmates. And, you know, what's, I've, I've heard that happen. And wow. it's really lame. Like we're out there in the most extraordinary place and, you know, to be so damaged by the expectations or thoughts of what it is to what being a man is supposed to look like or has to look like that you can't admire a sunset like we can do better than that um that's I think that a lot of people have done better that there is a lot more consciousness now for different fisheries being more inclusive places and different captains having more awareness um it's just does the newcomer to the fleet have the good fortune of landing on that boat mm. wow well I, I think maybe uh in terms of just everyone being able to appreciate out loud um fisher poets gathering must help with that because there's so many expressive people mm -hmm. um who you might not when if you were to glance at them the stereotype would be that person would that person think about that but yes they do and yes they yes they do and they're saying those things at fisher poets and i i love that it's just so um it's something that we all need to see you I know and feel too. yeah i'm so there with you about the space that 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 weekend has made for people to lean in like oh it's okay for me to talk about this and celebrate this or reflect on what a gift yeah 
Well, I, I wanted to just expand a little more on the the sort of, uh, so one professional mariner I know who was at the top of her profession once told me that she had to be twice as good as the men she was working with in order to be considered good enough. And she was way good enough. She was so amazing. <laughs> so does that resonate with you? Can you talk a little bit about being a woman in terms of the work itself and, and really what is still a male-dominated profession? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, there are definitely essays in the the beginning of the book that were written, that I wrote in the early days that Joel and I were working together. And this is a roundabout answer to your question, but um, we got together in 2004. He took over his parents' boat at 22 in 2005. And I didn't want to come work with him because I wanted to keep crewing on other people's boats because I didn't want to be the girlfriend on my partner's boat and that embedded power dynamic. And, and so, um, and then of course, you know, you miss the person you love and you want to be with your, your sweetheart. So a year later we started working together, but there was, um, a lot of butting heads in those beginning years because because I had a lot of of struggle around that about how good do I have to be and how much of this needs to be my own identity um, to count to to have it be like this is my identity and something that I would do separate of my male partner, but now we're doing it together. Um, and does that inherently lessen my contribution or do I have to then double my contribution to be, to have it be equal? And it's, it's a consciousness that I think a lot of us have, whether we're working with a partner or, you know, a non-related captain but just like how much error is there for mistakes or an off day or not knowing something, which is a human thing to not know everything, but yeah, it's inevitable. <laughs> it is inevitable, but how, how, um, how unforgiving we are of ourselves for what we don't know and how it's perceived. And then externally, is the environment forgiving of of our humanness? Yeah. Well, um, is there anything else that you want to talk about? I've kind of gone through my list of of questions, yeah. and so I wanted to say, is there anything else you would just like to say? To Your list has been question? amazing. You, <laughs> you, Brad, uh, Brad was spot on when he said you are the Terry Gross of Fisher poetry. I think we're going to have that bronzed. Oh my gosh. Well, it's in my heart, you know, it comes from the heart. I, I'm so interested. And that's really what interviews, good interviews are all about is you have to be interested and boy, I am. So thank you. Well, I would say, you know, it is a fascinating wild time right now in, you know, June, 2023, to be to have published and be promoting a book that is essentially a love letter 
to the Southeast Alaska salmon troll fleet. Um, because we're in the news a lot right now. And we're in the news because there is one organization out of Washington that has filed suit against our fishery and against uh, against king salmon specifically. And, and it's a really hard time to see a fishery that I know the science behind and I know the powers that be that manage our fishery that have for the past hundred plus years and to like on a dime see you know a hook and line family fishery that has long been known for our attention to quality and conservation to be vilified in the public eye um, by one group. Um, and for our land friends who genuinely just want to do the right things and, and look out for our environment and look out for salmon um, and don't know, don't know what, what's what. And so I, on one hand, I thought that like, wow, this is a really crazy time to be putting this book out there. And then as a friend pointed out, like, this is the absolute right time. And so I, I hope that um, for folks who want to understand a little bit of an insider perspective of our fishery, um, I hope that they choose to read it and that, you know, that that is helpful for for understanding what's not only in the hearts of fishermen, but also in the management practices. Um, and we'll see what happens. Well, since we sort of have people's ear for a moment here, can you talk a little bit more about, I mean, about trolling and because it is a minimal impact fishery compared to other kinds of, so can you just talk a little bit about why, um, why those folks are wrong, I guess? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the so trolling is just to clarify hook and line. It's a minimal bycatch. It's very targeted to species. Um, depending on the point of our season, we're either targeting king salmon, coho, or chum as a fishery. Um, and we are frequently frequently confused by folks who don't know as trawling, which is a massive scale uh, factory processing dragging nets and bottom, bottom fish. Exactly. That's, um, that's providing, you know, your Pollock for filet fish sandwiches and, and catches an enormous amount of bycatch, including King salmon. So that is a, a big point of concern for us and also they are corporate run ships that have a lot lot deeper pockets than our mom and pop trollers do so the lawsuit alleges that the king salmon that we catch in southeast alaska are taking kings from the southern resident killer whales who are deeply imperiled 
you know, the Puget Sound orcas have continued to decline when all other orca pods have flourished. Um, so that particular pod, which primarily resides in Puget Sound, which are the some of the most heavily trafficked, polluted, noise polluted, toxic waters, they are suffering. And what we have, you know, continued to try to explain and in our data from National Marine Fisheries Service and, uh, and NOAA is that the salmon that come up to Southeast Alaska are not the salmon that are returning to rivers in Puget Sound. Um, fish have fins, you know, there's going to be some strays, but those are not the fish we're fishing on. And so to close down one, the tiniest percentage of, of targeted kingfishery a thousand miles away and hope that that is going to make the difference when NOAA themselves have said that closing us down could result in 0.05 to 2% more king salmon for the southern residents. That's the difference mm -hmm. that you're going to make um, at the expense of, you know, a family fishery, 85% of which trollers are Southeast Alaska residents. Those are, those are families living in small, remote communities that are accessible only by boat or plane. They don't have other job opportunities lined up. And the ripple effect to the entire community where without trolling to support families, like when, when people have to move out, you lose schools. Like you don't have public school access without enough kids. And it just, we're thinking about that on such a full scale of what it is, not just to, oh, the fishermen can find other jobs, but what happens to an entire region's communities? And at what cost without, without turning the tide for the Southern residents? And so, you know, everyone loses except for one group who has done a bang up job of their fundraising efforts on, you know, exploiting an imperiled species and people's absolutely accurate desire to help. Hmm. Well, I think, um, that, you know, we've also seen the um, salmon seasons curtailed in Oregon and Washington yes. this year. Yeah. And if I can speak to that, you know. Sure, I did, absolutely. I did a trip um, to D.C. a couple weeks ago, um, just a very sudden impromptu trip of eight trollers who um, within like two, three days, like, we need to go talk to our reps about this. And we represented Alaska, Washington, and Oregon residents who are all Southeast Alaska salmon trollers. And our Oregon member, he talked to, he spoke to that. He said, my boat is tied up this year in Oregon. I can't fish in Oregon and I'm okay with that because I see the science behind it. I know what's driving this closure and we want to be, 
you know, we don't want to catch the last fish in the ocean. We want to be like continuing this like generationally and the whole ecosystem of it. And if that means sitting a season out on the science of it, absolutely. And it's, that is not what's happening in Southeast Alaska. They are different things. And all of the California and Oregon folks I've talked with, they get it. Like it's not, it's going to be a very hard road for them, but the science is there. Well, trolling, just so for people who don't understand it, trolling is really just catching kind of, I mean, mm -hmm. catching one fish at a time, one mm -hmm. hook, one fish. You're not taking giant nets and scooping everything that's in the next, the nearby vicinity or, or any of that, right? So exactly. talk a little bit about, about that trolling and what it is. Yeah. I think that is one of the things that is so hard for people to understand about it is because it doesn't make sense in, you know, where, where much of our society is about mass production and quantity and scale and speed and all of this. And they're like, what? You're, you're running a business. You're trying to make a living by putting around the ocean, dragging hooks and hoping a salmon will bite your hooks, pulling it in one by one and doing it again. And you think you're going to make a living that way. And, you know, we do because also people recognize that there's no higher quality of care that's provided than it is to a troll caught salmon. Um, but, you know, the detail, like you talked about being present. And like, I talk about Joel as being like our boat's um, salmon, salmon whisperer and how he's like always noticing, like, what's the tide doing? What's the sun on the water? Let's open up this belly and what are they eating? Oh, I have a lure that's just like that piece of bait fish. Let's run that and see if, you know, that's what they want to bite today. So it's- wow attending to every detail um which is not for everyone like that pace trolling's pace is is exactly why some people this is not the fishery for them <laughs> well uh, there's been an, a little change in uh, representation in Washington and in Alaska Mary Peltola yeah yeah so do you think that that she will be an asset in in some of these issues with uh, because mm -hmm. of her connection and her background and heritage yeah I think um all of the Alaska reps have been phenomenal you know in supporting this issue just because it is their they understand their constituents and um the necessity Mary Peltola um has been awesome to watch and I I think that um yeah she's she's on top of it and I was really enjoyed meeting uh some of her staffers it was fascinating to see how many younger women are running the show in DC in like their late 20s early 30s um well that's really encouraging <laughs> it was it was and they and how how familiar you know they already were with the issues um was very encouraging like they are paying attention and i think that is in no small part to uh 
to Mary Poltola's values. Wow, that's really great. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to say? I just am so thankful to get to share this time with you. Oh, likewise. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for hosting. Well, so uh, I want want to ask you one more question. Uh, Do you have more books in uh, in the works or down the road or in your head or anything? Um, I, I would like to revisit the one that didn't happen before. Like the one that I said was, was my one book. Um, it's, you know, there are a lot of ways that again, women are, uh, maybe discouraged from taking up too much space or talking about particular things and, and, and I got scared of that book and, mm. and it was easy to walk away from something that was very personal and felt risky. And so now already the support that I've felt from folks you included on this book mm. has been such a healing balm and it's been such an encouragement to like, oh, well, you know, you weigh risk and vulnerability with like what's the value in sharing this and and what does it feed me and what does it feed others so so there there may be another book we'll see oh i hope so <laughs> well um i want to hold this book up and say buy this book and ask you to tell people where they can get your book yeah i will also say um could you hold it up one more time Joanna? absolutely you bet So that cover is thanks to Sitka artist Lisa Tease Conaway, who is Flying Ravens Studio. And isn't that like an amazing name, too? Um, I approached Lisa last season and asked if I could commission her for the cover art for this book, uh, which, again, is part of the the beauty of being with a small press is your editors trust you with uh, tasks like that. And she, she did a dream cover. So it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And it so just so fits. Cover. It really fits. It um, where folks can get what water holds. Um, I encourage them to order directly from empty bowl press um, or also talking with their local indie bookseller, asking them to carry it um, by contacting Empty Bowl Press. And um, and always also thanks for asking your public library to carry it. So, Oh, excellent. Well, we have been talking, I'm so glad, <laughs> with <laughs> author, Fisher poet, my friend, Tella Adson. And uh, it's such an honor to know you, Tella, and to be um, in your in your aura here for this interview. It's just and and this book, just read it. Trust me, <laughs> it's a really great book. And and I think for people who are coastal dwellers, perhaps mm-hmm. you will resonate with this even more because those of us who live on the edges of the world like this, we all go to the seashore with that wistful feeling and look out mm-hmm. at the water. I mean, it's part mm-hmm. of the reason why we all live here. And this just is such a it'll tap into that for you even if you've never been on the water at all so i would recommend it highly thank you joanne thanks everybody for listening that was fisher poet tella adson in an interview with joanne rideout recorded on saturday june 10th 2023 for more information about tella's book what water holds check out the podcast description 
Also, be sure to check out Joanne's website, The Ship Report, at shipreport.net. Well, that's it. This one's in the tote. The Fisher Poetry Podcast is written and produced by Brad Wartman. The theme music for this episode is courtesy of Mark Allen Lovewell and Molly Canole. If you'd like to appear on or have comments about the show, please send an email to thefisherpoetryarchive at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to haul the latest episodes into your net. The Fisher Poetry Podcast is available via our podcast host, Spotify, as well as Apple, Google, and Amazon. You can listen to our other podcast episodes, watch our YouTube videos, and join our community by going to thefisherpoetryarchive.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. Come all young sailormen, listen to me. I'll sing you a song of the fish in the sea. Blow ye winds westerly, westerly blow. We're bound to the southern, so steady she goes. 